gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come to the Dispatch.com for all the good things and very few of the bad things. Um, I mean, not all the good things. You can't find a lot of puppies or kittens or or ice cream there, but you can find lots of good other stuff. Uh, today, we have one of my favorite people in the whole world returning. Uh, she is creeping up on the five-time gold jacket. Um, and... Uh, and I want to. I want to. I'm gonna. I'm actually. Before I introduce her, I want to. I want to preface something because I want to. I want to test our guest's feminist credentials. I often refer to uh, A. B. Stoddard of Real Clear Politics and uh, Punditry Extraordinaire uh, as the lovely and talented A. B. Stoddard, and I get blowback from people on Twitter saying that I am being sexist and demeaning and condescending when I refer to her as lovely and talented. Now I know that A.B. knows that it's coming from a good place in my heart. But, A.B., welcome to The Remnant, and tell me, do you feel oppressed or triggered when I refer to you as lovely and talented? Which word would you like me to cut out? I I, I like to regale my male colleagues with compliments of their um, loveliness and, and talent, so um, I don't really understand that. But I also, uh, I, I crossed an age uh, mark Years ago, where even when old men would drool at my neckline and tell me that I looked very pretty, I decided that it was great um, sort of benefit of middle age that you could take those compliments without being offended. <laughs> and you would be um, I, I was sure I assure them actually bluntly that I don't sue. So the lovely and talented is um, a high honor um, and it's always a high honor to be with you. Um, I really wouldn't listen to uh, the peanut gallery on that one, Jonah. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it to be sort of like that rare sort of 0.5% of feminist types, not quite the people who dress up in cosplay with uh, Handmaid's Tale costumes, but just shy of that, who take offense if you open the door for a lady or if you stand up when they walk into a room and all of these things that my father made me do. Um, and if I had a son, I would make him do. But uh, to me, and plus it has the benefit of being true. You're lovely and you're talented. So there you go. Thank um, you. I, yeah, I, I think the, I think the, um, the wokesters have taken us a bit too far. Um, so, uh, I, you know, we could actually, we could bind together into a single volume, all of your appearances on the remnant and just call it why we can't have nice things. <laughs> but, um, why don't, for this chapter, why don't we start with something that you wrote? We'll put in the show notes, uh, for real clear where you are, where, which is your home, um, uh, about how it's Mitch McConnell's time for choosing or words to that effect. Um, where do you see the, like, what does Mitch McConnell have to choose and what does his choosing actually look like? Right. Well, I think everyone's eyes are on Mitch McConnell because they want to know if he's going to help Joe Biden because they have a 36 year friendship and they both love the Senate and we're in these overlapping crises and he's going to do bipartisan things or is he going to encourage filibustering? Is he going to block his agenda? I think the the real challenge that's keeping Mitch McConnell up at night right now is what he will do in his final term, probably 78 years old, just one uh, re-election handily. 
um, at this moment where he feels that democracy is under threat and that the Trump years did a lot to destroy our institutions and our checks and balances. Uh, and uh, Congress is the check on the executive, uh, the undermining of the judiciary, the politicizing, politicizing of the military. You know, we know what Mitch, Mitch McConnell is offended by. And after the insurrection, um, he, you know, he's he's made it clear through these orchestrated leaks that he can't stand Trump. He'll never speak to him again. And he's open to convicting. We know that there are people leaning on him uh, in the corporate world, the donor world, um, you know, big poobah of Republican politics of yesteryear world telling him the only way for the party to make a break with Trump is to, to, is, is to convict him in this trial. So Mitch McConnell uh, is, you know, he wants to be majority leader again in 2022. That's very soon. They have a real shot at taking the majority back in 2022. The path of least resistance is to let the party remain a cult and let both the Holly Cruz cotton crowd who's going to find different reasons to vote against conviction, do that, procedural reasons and other other things. And then um, just, you know, say to, you know, to other people, maybe it's just easier um, if we don't pressure them by coming up with 10 votes. You could see Sass, you could see Portman, you could see Collins, you could see Murkowski, you could see Todd Young of Indiana, who was in a fight with the protesters outside the day of the insurrection saying, these are the rules and we can't break them because we don't like them. You know, there's, there's actually a bunch of people that could crawl out of the woodwork and vote for conviction, but they're not 17. So I look at McConnell's moment as really about, you know, what he can do as the highest ranking Republican in the country now that Trump and Pence are gone to help the party, but also to help the institution of the Senate and the Congress. And I think he's really torn about those things. And I think he really can't stand Trump and he'd like to see him convicted and banned from office. His conference has made clear he won't get 17 votes, but he he has incredible power um, if he stands up and rejects um, what the party is trying to do, which is to um, blow up King Kong and let him smash the whole city again. So uh, it's not really about what he's going to do with Biden um, on COVID relief. It's really about whether or not he puts a big foot down in this moment to say to the party, we can't continue on this path. And it's clear Kevin McCarthy won't do that. It's clear that, you know, he and Liz Cheney and other people are in a minority. But, you know, in my view, they're right. And so do you do what's right and take the heat in your legacy moment post-Trump presidency? Or do you just kind of, you know, keep on acquiescing? Uh, you know, you're, we're five years in. It's the easiest thing to do. He knows that's the destruction of the party. And he knows it's really, I think, the end of impeachment as a tool. Um, in the Congress. And uh, it really will do terrible things as a precedent, as you have talked about, and I've talked about that set, what an acquittal would do. It really erodes the independence and the integrity of the Congress forevermore. So, I mean, it's funny because, um, I don't know, a couple months ago, I wrote a piece uh, for the dispatch about how you know, I have my dis I've had my disagreements with Mitch McConnell over the last four years. You know, there are all sorts of things that he just sort of sat on the bench and let go by because he was so focused on what was on his plate and what were his priorities and getting what he could out of Trump in terms of judges and, and whatnot. But I also have always had, you know, legitimate respect for McConnell 
because you can say he's too partisan. You can say he's wrong about this or that or whatever, but he's a grown up, you know? I mean, like uh, the in previous cycles, who, who was the woman who had to run the ad saying that she wasn't a witch? Christine O'Donnell in Delaware. Right. I mean, he, he started to earn the wrath of the sort of already increasingly poisoned Tea Party fringe back then by just saying, look, we got to be grownups and 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 support electable candidates. And his position on campaign finance reform, I know a lot of liberals don't like it, but his speech about it, I think, was prescient. It was incorrect. And in many ways, you know, against the interests of the party in some ways. And um, but he thought it was the right thing to do. And and so anyway, I, I, you know, I could live with a Mitch McConnell's Republican Party in ways that I could never live with a Donald Trump's Republican Party. But it's it's kind of fascinating to me what it takes for Mitch McConnell to say this is a bridge too far. You know, I mean, um, and I understand why a lot of liberals criticize him for saying, OK, it wasn't until an a- absolute siege on the Capitol by a lame duck, forced by a lame duck president that he actually kind of found his spine about Trump, but those were the circumstances that he was in. Um, but so when you say there's all this pressure from from corporate types, I don't hear any of, I mean, like in the political, in the realm of the, of the political discourse where you actually hear people, not behind the scenes, but on TV or in, in news stories, you just don't hear a lot of, Donor types stepping forward saying we got to dump this guy. It, it 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 why is it all behind the scenes at this point still? Yeah, I mean the whole there's so much going on behind the scenes, and that's that's a very interesting question. I think it's because it's so volatile and so fluid, and people don't want to be, they don't want to put their foot down permanently in public because they don't know what's going to happen. I think a lot of uh, you know MAGA bots would say, oh, these are just the elites uh, that have turned on the president. These, you know, big tech and big corporations and all of Josh Hawley's crap. That's what they're that's what they those are the voices that they know are talking to McConnell about, you know, cleansing the party of Trump. I I, I think that the the corporations don't know what course the Senate's going to take and the party's going to take. So they don't want to be out out there on the record um, claiming it uh, because eventually they'll go back to giving to these people. But the idea that you can support Republicans who, I mean, first of all, let's give McConnell credit that he broke with him the morning before the insurrection, but he waited until after the runoffs because he wanted to be majority leader and he wanted two seats in Georgia. So he waited and his the silence and his omission, you know, makes him complicit in the fact that this led to violence and that he, he didn't stand up against the big lie from November 3 to January 6 in the morning, but he did on January 6 before the attack. After the attack, you have a bunch of people coming back. Two things happened. They came back and voted to decertify the election. The following week, they voted in the House not to impeach in large numbers, everyone but 10. Then they began to whitewash the attack. Uh, And we also learned these grisly details of Trump's response you know, not taking the calls to, to, to beg people to either bring in reinforcements or, or beg the crowd to stand guard. All of the things he did being forced to make that video and still saying he won the election, um, which still emboldens his, his um, 
you know, his kind of martyr status and his, is his supporters to think they did the right thing. So I think that um, McConnell doesn't know which direction uh, he can steer the party in and which direction he's going to go in. So um, unless he's working behind the scenes, which of course I hope he is, with people, the Justice Department and across, you know, the Trump administration in the remaining days to find out just what was going on um, in terms of his attempts to use the infrastructure of the government to 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 have a successful coup, which we know from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times over the weekend, you know, we know some details about and it failed. Um, I, I think it's so fluid, Jonah, that no one wants to be on the record right now saying anything, whether you're a, a donor on the outside, a consultant, um, candidates, uh, you know, people up in the 22 cycle. You can see, obviously, that Rob Portman saw the writing on the wall. Um, and so he decided not to run again. But I think McConnell, um, I think that they're furiously weighing these questions and they just don't know um, yet how to proceed. And that's why no one wants to be to be out front. And And I wonder if even the people that are saying, like Cornyn, you know, this is vindictive. The way you get punished is to lose an election. Well, I mean, is there any way that he would come around given like a horrible new revelation or, you know, something in the trial? I don't know. I mean, I think that I think that the people who are using their leverage, you know, are going to continue to use it up until the last minute. Do I think that they're going to convict? Of course not. Um, but I think that Mitch McConnell and Liz Cheney look like they want to fight for the party and they want to fight for the system. And I'll be sad when they give up. So, um, uh, <laughs> well, again, that's, th- again, this is a series called why we can't have nice things. So, um, <laughs> but so, all right. So some rapid fire questions. Uh, I think it was Tim Alberta who first floated this, but like, um, uh, he said if it was a secret vote in the house, it'd be more like 50 or 60 voting to impeach. Do you think that's about right? Oh, I think it's higher than that. I think it's higher than that. I'm, I know a member who was absolutely going to vote against decertification and then was forced by constituents in the winning hours to do so. I know people who, you know, oh, look, we know from from um, Congressman Meyer, who took um, Amash's seat in Michigan, that people are saying that my, they're following my wife to the grocery store. The senators are going to say the same thing. I, I think the senators would love to dump him, but they're getting literally, you know, um, like switchboard breaking, to use an old term, um, amounts of phone calls telling them they have to be loyal to the president. And to the former president. Just yes, to the former president. <laughs> um, um, and so, like, I think you're right that, you know, barring some new revelation, um, and it's depressing how much of a bombshell that revelation would have to be um, to change people's minds at this point, they don't vote to convict. But at the same time, I'd be curious to know, I mean, I would bet that the statements from the senators explaining their votes will almost entirely be basically procedural and constitutional gobbledygook and not making the case that the president did nothing wrong. And that alone would be helpful, right? I mean, like, I don't know how, I mean, like Cornyn, he'll say I'm, I'm against it because I don't think this is what the founders intended was to impeach a president after he left, you know, remove, convict a president after he left office. 
which I think is a nonsense argument, by the way. But um, I very much doubt he will say the president did nothing wrong. He was right to raise these questions about the stolen election, yada, yada, yada. Um, so for, two parts. One is which senators will actually make a substantive defense of Trump's behavior when they vote to acquit? Um, and how much trouble will senators get in if they try to have it both, you know, if they Rubio it and have it both ways? I think the president's behavior was shameful and blah, 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 blah. But this is not how we unify the country and, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, is there going to be a whipping from the MAGA crowd to get the senators to say Trump did nothing wrong? And if they don't say that, will they still get punished? That's such an interesting question, because Jason Miller has already issued, he issued that threat over the weekend that, you know, the House has impeached and we're um, doing, you know, we're basically going to threaten their future in primaries. And um, the, the president has made clear he wants to help the Republicans win the House and Senate back in 2022. And he said, if the Republican Senate, senators want to make something, you know, more of this, it's entirely up to them. So th- they've received a threat that they're not only getting like crazy megaphone calls from home about, you know, how they have to stick up for the president and Biden's illegitimate president. And this is all an outrage. Um, so I actually can see some people getting up and saying he was just giving a fiery political speech and he didn't mean to um, incite an insurrection. I think, like you said, most of them will try to have it both ways and and use all process. Um, which harkens back to uh, Lamar Alexander basically saying during the first impeachment, like the Democrats have made their case and it's obvious like that he's guilty, but I'm not going impe- to I'm not going to convict him. I think I'll just let the voters decide. So, I mean, an open abdication of his role. And I think that we'll hear a lot of those process arguments I haven't heard. I mean, I haven't heard yet that the president's mis- been misunderstood and that um, he's not responsible. Uh, I've, I've, I think maybe, you know, you could see Tommy Tuberville getting up and saying that. I don't know there'll be many. Uh, maybe Ron Johnson, because he's very focused on his primary. Um, but I, 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 I think it'll largely be a two-step about, you know, looking for the, those exit ramps about the Constitution and private citizens and, and all that. And I, of course, I agree with you that it's a totally bogus argument. Yeah, I mean, and just, we don't have to get deep in the weeds on this, but like the, you know, I was tweeting about this earlier today, but like the, the, the logic of saying, you know, Rand Paul came out and says it's outrageous and unconstitutional to impeach a president after he's left office that means, I mean, if you're talking about dangerous precedents, that establishes the precedent that a sitting president can literally do anything. Like, let's say the, the, the extreme the extreme version of what Trump did, let's say Trump left no doubt. Let's say he said, we have to take Congress and force them to reject the electors by any means necessary. And I want you to smash in and take the place in the name of democracy and and you know, if if you got to break some eggs to make an omelet and, you know, viva la revolution or whatever it is, according to Rand Paul's theory, a president could could do that. And um, Congress would have no ability to sanction him um, because the clock wouldn't allow for an impeachment to get going before he left office. That's crazy, right? I mean, and it just sort of gets to this problem I have with I don't think it's a great precedent to have um, 
an impeachment after a president has left office. And I don't I don't I don't think that if it were successful, it would have, you know, that it's obvious that there wouldn't be some negative consequences to it. But we got no good choices here. And I keep asking people for an example of, okay, you know, Lindsey Graham goes around saying this is a this establishes a dangerous precedent to impeach a president after he left office. Okay, so what's the worst case scenario about that precedent? I can't figure out what it is. It's almost impossible to get 67 votes to convict anybody. So no one's going to bother doing it um, unless there's some major reason to do it. And meanwhile, the worst case scenario of allowing the precedent of the president of the United States to get away with unleashing a mob while lying about an election being stolen in order to, you know, execute essentially a self-coup, I can come up with all sorts of really bad scenarios, uh, worst case scenarios about letting that precedent slide. And yet the only talking point is about how dangerous it is to set up a precedent that impeaches a president after he's left office, which, you know, was understood as possible in the founding era and really does not have huge downsides other than making a lot of MAGA types really angry. Well, I mean, there's no question that you don't get a get out of jail free card in the last 72 hours or three weeks of your presidency to just commit crimes against the Constitution and incite an attack on our government. You, I mean, you just, I'm sorry, that's not a precedent that that can stand. And so they have to think long and hard about what they're doing um, by refusing to do their job because their job is to preserve and protect this system, to defend the Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic, and pass this system on to the next generation. It's not to protect Donald Trump's disastrous political legacy. And they know that. And so, you know, they're they're just going to have to make that choice. But you have to bring the impeachment to to lay down the marker for future generations. It should have happened, obviously, um, ideally before he left office, but we have to tell the world that we are not broken, even though we have people in the United States Senate and the United States House that are willing to break us. So, I, I, you know, I, I just, I, I, that's just such a ridiculous argument. And I know they don't want to be on the record acquitting Trump. They want to avoid the trial because they don't want to be on the record acquitting him two times both times for trying to steal an election and then trying to steal it after the fact, you know, a year in advance and after the fact and and supporting and inciting and supporting an insurrection after a failed coup through which he used almost, you know, every lever that he could in state and local government. So so it's 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 I mean, it's just astounding if you think about it. And they know they don't want to take that vote. They know the midterms are coming soon and they don't want to take that vote. But um, that's why they keep squirreling around with these other uh, arguments about how it's a waste of time and it's just so upsetting. And as you keep talking about, you know, it'll hurt everybody's fragile feelings. So which way do you think Rob Portman and 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 um, Pat Toomey are going to vote? I mean, I'll be very surprised if they don't vote to convict, because I think Mitch McConnell is going to vote to convict. But. I don't know any of this. I'm just saying the word think because, you know, anything can happen. Um, but I, I think that there there is a world, like I said, where, you know, you have people. It could be some Republicans. It could be it, I, I don't have all the names. Like I said, um, if you had Sass, Collins, Murkowski, 
McConnell to meet Portman. That gets you to six. Romney. Romney, yeah. And then and then Young. And then maybe you have a surprise. I mean, I think you get halfway there, but not there. I'm I'm going to be stunned if Portman and Toomey don't vote with McConnell. I just don't know how. I mean, I know how, like, if Rand Paul were retiring, how he could still vote to acquit because he's, you know, he should have eyes that are 10 times the size they are because he's basically a subterranean creature. But um, uh, <laughs> Which like, is better than steroidal, which is the word you described recently. <laughs> um, that you used for Matt Gates, and I was in a supermarket and started bursting out in really um, embarrassing laughter that was not yeah. good for the public. Steroidal Playmobil action yes, figure, yes, I think yes. is the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but then, um, all right. So, but th- this raises a question. I and I got into an argument. I, I should say a rarefied and intellectual uh, dialogue with my wife this morning about this, um, and I tried to get an answer out of Mo Alifi. Um, last week on this podcast about it. And I have I have some friends whose judgment I really value and um, who are serious people. And they make the case, and I'm coming around to it more and more, that Nancy Pelosi handled this badly. Um, if you, look, I, we, we both agree that he should be impeached, that what he did was impeachable, and that if we were voting, we would vote to convict. So put that all aside, right? You know, um, and it, when I when I argue with some liberals about this, they they get caught up in the importance of the ends, and they don't want to argue about the means because it causes cognitive dissonance. But like the way Pelosi did this, um, by it, let's put it this way: if you really actually believed in the the Biden mantra about unity, if you believe that what Trump did was uh, wicked, as Ben Sass put it, and bad for the republic as a as a matter of raw, simple, patriotic commitment. And you wanted to send a signal that this could not stand, that did not have the stink of partisanship to it. Why wouldn't you consult with Republicans who agreed with you that he did something impeachable about how to write the articles of impeachment? Why wouldn't you try your hardest to get Republican managers, at least a couple Republican managers, to um, make the case in the House, I mean, in the Senate, in the Senate trial. Why wouldn't you, like, I, I keep meaning to look this up, but a friend of mine was saying that there was one woman who wanted to speak up in favor of impeachment on the Republican side, and McCarthy wouldn't give her time on the floor, and the Democrats refused to give her time to speak as well which seems to me just so politically dumb if you want to create the air that this is a bipartisan offense. And if you listen to, obviously there are a lot of Republicans who would not vote for impeaching no matter what, but I take it that some of them are acting in good faith, like Chip Roy, if you read his floor speech, he flatly says that what Trump did was impeachable, that he should be impeached for it, but he cannot vote for this article of impeachment because of the way it was written the way it's 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 flawed argument about insurrection and incitement, um, blah 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 blah. If you had invited a Republican into the room when you were drafting these things to say this is what would put the most Republicans in a box and not give them an escape clause, you wouldn't have written the articles of impeachment that way. But it feels like to me there's a valid case to make that Pelosi sees this through a at least somewhat partisan lens and likes the dynamic of 
making Trump a wedge issue for Republicans rather than something that could actually garner more bipartisan support. Am I crazy about that? Well, first of all, even if she had gotten um, 30, if they'd gotten 37 Republicans to um, to vote to impeach with the Democrats, it still would be, uh, I mean, it would, Donald Trump would still be a wedge issue for Republicans, right? I mean, that, there's no question, like the, even if you got to 55, but um, I'm completely with you on Republican participation. I, as if I believe, and if my memory serves me correctly, and I hope it does, but it's been a long 10 days, um, Adam Kinzinger wanted time on the Democratic side. Oh, maybe, maybe that's it. And yeah. that was that you're right. I mean, you someone, someone like that who's gung ho in the room to say, let's box in as many uh, Republicans as possible. And, you know, it's, it's a much more powerful statement. It would have been made things more complicated uh, for Republicans in the Senate. I was I thought Justin Amash should have been part of the impeachment team last year. Um, the Ukraine impeachment. I'm, com- you know me. I'm Mrs. Bipartisan. As many people as you can bring together with a common consensus view um, from both parties, the better. It's just, it, it just, it just totally um, takes the air out of the bubble um, for Trump. Um, but, but I also, and I, and I'm not a lawyer, and I don't understand about. I don't know sort of how narrowly technically this thing was written. I was thinking that it was going to, they were going to bring in stuff about the Ravensburger call and other things to show the extent to which he used his vast powers to try to steal the election pre-incitement of an insurrection. So I really thought that was going to be kind of coupled and that that would be part of the case to the Senate. And it makes it so much harder to vote against. So I'm with you. I don't understand why you don't get Republicans who are on your side to participate, uh, who understand um, who in their conference might be, you know, willing to bend. Um, I, I I also know that Democrats are timid and they um, they wring their hands and they um, want to. They think that something smaller, and you could tell this the first time, is safer. That that anything that they do that's um, too lengthy will be they'll be accused of throwing the kitchen sink. So let's like look look ahead. Um, it seems to me like you know you, like this week feels or this last seven ten days whatever impeachment stuff notwithstanding and all of that feels like we may look back at that like this moment as the moment we should have known X was coming right and what I mean by that is like. Um, a bunch of the worst actors of the side of the Republican Party that, you know, I cannot stand um, have revealed themselves in some ways. We saw the Hawaii GOP tweet out some QAnon nonsense. The Oregon GOP issued this bat guano crazy resolution condemning the 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment because the uh, the siege on the on January 6th was a false flag operation conducted by leftists to make Trump look bad. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders announced that she's going to run for governor in Arkansas. We saw um, uh, Rob Portman announce that he was going to retire. Um, there's new talk about Laura Trump running in North Carolina. There's talk about Ivanka running in Florida. Um, and 
I feel, oh, and there was the, the complete fecal festival thing that happened in, um, Arizona where they condemned John McCain's widow and Doug Ducey. And, um, and so like, it feels like it's possible that the MAGA wing of, of the GOP is feeling its oats and will look back and say, either this is when the GOP, when, when the inmates took over the asylum for real, or it'll be, we'll look back on it and say, this is why we blew 2022 because all of these guys ended up losing. And this Trump as wedge issue thing that we saw in Arizona and in really in Georgia metastasized to a nationwide phenomenon. Um, what do you think? I mean, like, wh- where do you think it's going to go? If you had to bet your mortgage on which side in this argument ends up on top and running the party, um, where do your instincts lie? Right. So running the party is different than winning um, over that slice of voters who are the uh, are decisive in general elections and winning the general elections. And so I don't know that this is like great news for Chuck Schumer. And he's definitely going to hold the Senate in 2022 because many things can happen predominantly um, with mutating coronaviruses that keep us home for another year because the vaccines don't work and the economy um, remains devastated and uh, Democrats are unpopular. I mean, I just don't know what, what what's going to um, turn in terms of these escalating crises that we're in and voters' response. But in terms of the Republican Party, I'm going to throw in there that the Wyoming um, party has already censured Liz Cheney and the Wyoming, the head of the Wyoming party said on Steve Bannon's podcast last week that Wyoming should take a look at secession like some in Texas have. And the Michigan Republican Party wants to fire the canvassers that voted to certify the election results in Michigan. It just goes on and on and on. And what it shows you is that the inmates are running the zoo. And so it doesn't matter what Mitch McConnell does, right? Um, at the state level, the, the, the MAGA forces have, have taken over the parties. And you can't, if you're trying to come up now as like a new normal Adam Kinzinger, Adam Kinzinger Republican at, at that level from the ground up, which is what we would ask them to do, right? Fix the party from the ground up. Get, you know, start off, start your political career based on old Republican principles and limited government, free trade, you know, a, a, a leadership role in the world, um, you know, f- free market capitalism, debt reduction, and the rule of law and the truth. That person is crippled now at the local level because all those parties run, they have the donors, they have the lists, they have the control, and it's all fully infiltrated by the Trump infrastructure. And so, you know, that is really going to control the primaries, the primary, of course, the Republican primary voting base, we know is, we know exactly where they are. They're all Kelly Ward. And so how, you know, how does Mitch McConnell um, not end up with Jim Jordan as the nominee in Ohio. Oh, that was another him. one. Yeah, it was Jim Jordan. Yeah. And so, so how do you, you know, so I do think, though Mitch McConnell, and you pointed this out, did fend off in the past, both pre-Trump and then in, with Steve Bannon for the for the uh, nominations for 2018, you know, he, he has fended off 
uh, insurgents candidates uh, when he could. I mean, he wasn't able to with Richard Murdoch in Indiana and um, Sharon Angle in Nevada and Christine O'Donnell. But he learned from that and he fought back and he was very successful. But depending on what happens in the next couple of weeks with, with conviction or not and acquittal and what that does to really empower Trump, empower his supporters, um, I just think that they're going to end up with Trumpkin candidates. And then I would think, so that's what happens to the party. That's what I'm betting is that happens to the party that Cheney and Kinzinger and Sass and Romney um, and McConnell are in the minority. Uh, and that the that the, that the forces dominate the party. What that does to their general election prospects statewide in twenty two or or nationwide in twenty four, I'm not sure yet. But it's a bad bet because without Trump on the ticket to bring out all the people that love him the most fervently and are newly engaged in politics, they can't win because they lose the normal voter. So in Georgia. Some normal voters who might have voted for Biden actually went to vote for Purdue and Leffler because they wanted a Republican majority. But the huge, you know, merch wearing, rally attending magsters in the rural parts of Georgia stayed home because Trump told them to. They knew that they couldn't participate in that rigged election. He's not going to be on the ballot in 2022. And so McConnell knows that. How can you be a majority party? Well, they're already a minority party. But how can you get to majority status if you don't show the voters you lost in the Trump years why you're credible and, you, and you're done with him and you're moving on from the illiberalism of Trumpism? Be, the, the pool of people left, uh, the fringe you know, candidates, the fringe party officials, state level, um, it, it can't get you there turning out enough rural white men, you know, Trump diehards and their wives, if Trump is not on the ticket. Um, you know, it kind of, there's a slight digression, but that's, you know, that's, that's what you, it, it's included in the package. Um, you know, one of the things that it just makes, has scrambled everybody's brains, including mine, and, and I, I assume, you know, to some extent yours, about the Trump years is that so often what Trump did was not in his own best political interest. And because of the relationship he had with his followers, everyone had to change their common sense understanding of what is smart politics to fit dumb decisions and sometimes crazy decisions. And like one of the best examples about this, I am sure if Donald Trump, I'm sure Donald Trump was really angry about losing his Twitter account. And thought it be, and he always thought his Twitter account was his best friend, his most useful tool, and all that kind of stuff. And yet, I think if he had not lost his Twitter account, the odds of him being convicted in the Senate would be much greater. <laughs> Probably, because right? he would have said stuff about how, you know, particularly the week of, you know, like when the new video was coming out that he just would have said stuff that would have pissed off senators so much that would have showed a lack of remorse. Right. He wouldn't have had to they, they couldn't have done the hostage video thing where he condemned it all because he would have been tweeting about how that really wasn't me and blah, blah, blah. And um, and similarly, it's like this talk of a new Patriot Party. Is so incandescently stupid because Trump, the Trumpists are actually taking over the actual Republican Party. And 
it would be like just after after successfully breaking into the vault saying we got to try a different bank right i mean like he the trumpists own the party but because there's still this vestigial dislike of trump among some elites or establishment types or whatever he'd rather have a small party that purely loves him and is all about him than a big party where he actually has to put up with criticism or constraint and if he pursues that, that's actually the answer to a lot of Republican problems, because it would just siphon off people, force them to choose. Are you with the Republican Party, which has a chance of actually governing in some places, or with you this? are you with this purely culty thing that is all performative and all based around one guy's personality? And that's why I really hope that he does it. Um, but... I am now, where was I? Now I'm sort of, I've lost a bit of my train of thought, but um, um, it seems to me like, like if Trump really wanted to orchestrate taking over the GOP forever and making it a truly Trumpy party, he'd be doing things right now that could, could orchestrate that. But I don't think he knows how to do it. He's never a strategic planner. And so, so much of this stuff is more organic than 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 planned or or anything like that and now i completely lost where i was going with this but um it will come to me probably in the supermarket aisle because <laughs> i have to well come to it but uh you are right that he i mean he's just too lazy and as you said not a strategic thinker to launch a new party he would like some merch and you know some good decorations but he's not looking for, for to start a new party and and, and maggie haberman reported I think this morning or last night that, you know, that basically people had to explain to him that that was really dumb. And so Jason Miller has put out right before I joined you, uh, put out a statement saying they want to make it very clear to all people trying to start Patriot parties that they don't have that, that, that Donald Trump um, for president pack or whatever. I think there's something besides save America pack, but um, is not going to be involved with them. So so it's no, like they've talked him out of it and he's going to go full intimidate you in the primaries, you know, run, run people against um, everybody. And look, Jonah, I think that's going to be largely successful. I mean, it's going to be very hard for Lynch, Liz Cheney uh, in Wyoming. It's going to be, I mean, maybe, maybe because she's Liz Cheney, she gets by very hard unless they pile up and that, and they splinter the vote and then Adam Kinzinger can pull it out. You know, if you get one Trump challenger, in, in Republican districts, um, it's it's it is going to be a threat to the Republican Party. So, is it possible, sort of going back to that fork in the road about the crazies, the, the crazies versus the normals? Um, could we see a return to the old dynamic, which defined most of American political history, where the House got more and more populist and the Senate didn't? Right. Because right now, I mean, like if Jim Jordan goes into the Senate, it's it's it it hastens the process of the houseification of the Senate, you know, which is like what Ron Johnson is part of and what Ted Cruz is part of. Um, but since it's much more difficult to see how senators can win statewide where you actually need those suburban voters who don't like the crazies, um, you know, you look at, you know, how Doug Ducey got elected in Arizona and John McCain, you know, as, as Cindy McCain pointed out. Those were the two last two last Republicans to run to win in Arizona. Um, could you see that the Republicans, maybe not in the majority, but the Republicans who actually make it to the Senate are actually 
definitionally, temperamentally more moderate than the House, and that the, 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 because of this wedge issue thing will intensify the dynamics of making the House Republicans more MAGA-y, but also mean that MAGA-y senators can't get elected. Does that make sense? I uh, hope that they can't. My worry is that you can't stop Jim Jordan from winning the Republican Party primary in Ohio. And then, you know, it's just uh, depending on how many new voters, uh, Georgia, I mean, you know, um, Stacey Abrams and other champions um, of, you know, all this voter registration on the Democratic side, non-white voters, young voters, how successful they are in Ohio. Uh, You know, Barack Obama would have lost Ohio in 2012 to Romney because he lost black vote he got in 08 had he not registered 200,000 new black voters and he won it just barely in, in 2012 against Romney. So unless we see it's a pretty red state, maybe Jim Jordan just can get elected and come to the Senate as a super Trumpy senator. Um, maybe there's going to be some kind of ascent uh, of, you know, Tim Ryan, Sherrod Brown, populist Democrats in Ohio who are able to get one of theirs elected and beat Jim Jordan. I, again, so much depends on what happens you know, um, a functional DNC, uh, you know, Biden's record in the Senate, um, their accomplishments, whether or not they can actually deliver on stuff that people feel by next September. I mean, that's, you know, it's a real, it's a, the only thing that the, that the Republicans got before the midterms was the tax cut. And, and they knew at the end of that campaign, the RNC put out internal memo saying we have lost the battle, the messaging battle on the tax cut. Do not run on it because, you know, the folk they needed to pull them over the over the edge and turn out didn't feel it. So, so much can it's very hard for me to, like, bank on a Democrat winning Ohio and say, like, for sure, I see more, I would probably put my money on Jim Jordan winning the primary and winning the general and being a senator. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting if J.D. Vance gets in, right, because then you'd have a real test between the, I mean, the intellectuals on the right that I have these serious disagreements and arguments with who insist that their nationalism and their post-liberal blah, blah, blah stuff is all very serious regardless of Trump. And it's not just MAGA stuff. It's a serious thing. Um, By rights, they should all support J.D. Vance, who's a serious guy who's gone kind of that direction. And if they're, if, but if they support Jordan, then it just, it shows that it's really just the loudest cable news screamer that gets the support. And because that's who Jordan is. And that, that at least to me would make it an interesting contest. Um, I could live with JD Vance in the Senate, I think, you know, and he's, He's a serious person, even if I think he's made some he's gone off the rails a little bit lately. I think what's I think what's going to be so interesting um, as we look at the sort of what's next is not only whether the kind of governing normal Republicans somehow manage to push back and cleanse Trump enough so that they can move on and and have a power center in the party again or the MAGAs just take over. But also, um, you know, I think what's going to be revealed is whether or not the voters really want any policy or they just want the fight. Do they really give a crap about Mike Pompeo's posture against Russia, of course, that he found late in his service? Or, you know, Holly's position on China, 
that he couldn't articulate while Trump was president or uh, Tom Cotton, who's kind of trying to thread this like, I'm not I'm a serious policy guy and I protect democracy. I'm not a performative screamer, but he's going to try to, you know, fight the media and fight the liberals, you know, to, to, to get support. And, and really in the end, is it going to be, is that base going to be looking for someone who wants to obliterate the other side or for the continuation of some sort of Trump era policies? And I don't think we know the answer to that question yet. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is a huge complaint I've had for a while now is that the, the Rubio cotton, all these guys claiming that they can pick up the mantle of the Trump vote with with policy prescriptions begs a question, right? And I mean, I, and I'm using question begging in the correct sense. That doesn't raise the question. It, it begs the question in the sense that it assumes that the people who voting, who were turning out for Trump in the first place were policy driven at all, rather than Trump or personality or entertainment or own the libs driven. And, you know, the same people who say that they love Trump because of all his wins and all his policies, um, they point out that his wins and policies weren't this, the Holly Cotton stuff. It was my zombie Reaganism stuff, the Paul Ryan tax cuts and the and the Federalist Society judges that they, you know, say, look, look at all the things they got accomplished. And then the response, the weird response to the market signals from Rubio on these guys is to reject that stuff and come up with this sort of working class public policy stuff that they don't know how to explain to the Trump voters that they think is going to attract them. It's a very weird sort of mismatch that I that I don't, no one has explained to me what the sort of s- serious hardball political rationale behind it is. It just feels like a lot of uh, kabuki theater to me. I, I know we're going long and we've, I, I should, you know, th- th- this wasn't intended necessarily to be purely dump on um, Republican stuff. Um, what, how do you, th- I mean, I, I'll grant you, it is early, <laughs> but how do you think the Biden administration's going? <laughs> yeah, I think that it's clear that he has a very realistic sense of the trouble ahead in the Senate. And that um, even though he went to uh, to campaign in the runoffs in Georgia to uh, tell the Georgia voters that they really had to turn out and this was it. And all the Democrats were promising the Georgia voters that, you know, this was it. All the all the progressive policy uh, prescriptions were on the you know, the whole future of the country were on the docket. You've got to get in there and. And, you know, that's just not true. This isn't a 50, this is a 50-50 Senate. It's not a Democratic majority. It's a power-sharing agreement. Um, And there is a tie-breaking vote on some votes that Kamala Harris can bring to the table as vice president. But I covered the power-sharing agreement in 2001, and it's not pretty. I mean, it's, it's, or 2000, it's a very difficult arrangement. And you're hanging on by a thread and you have these two choices, right? Eliminate the filibuster or use reconciliation. And that's very, you know, very narrow. So Biden understands all of that. And I think that's why these executive orders are just, they're just, you know, barfing them out as fast as they possibly can, as many as they can every day on, a, you know, as, as many subjects as they can. Systemic racism, climate crisis, you know, everything, college affordability, whatever they can to try 
to, you know, get through this stage of kind of gesture politics to tell the progressive left, like, we hear you, we're doing what we can, we, we, we're trying, we're using the pen and the phone, um, and we'll take the heat for that. But I think Biden intends to get down to some kind of legislative give and take um, on the COVID package that they say is so urgent that clearly is not going to pass until March or April. So um, I'm with you. The minimum wage is non-germane to the pandemic. It's a poison pill. But again, that is probably an attempt to speak to the left. Like, look, I put it on there. No one's biting. It's not going to work. But I tried it. Now, that might be a benign view of what he's doing, but that's what I think he's doing Um, because they know they're not going to get a minimum wage pass that's going to kill small businesses in a pandemic. But it's it's a bunch of, you know, kind of signals they have to send out to the rest of um, base of their party as they're doing things like swearing in brand new senators who are progressives from Georgia and installing a new, you know, DNC chair and keeping everybody on board, right? And so um, it is true on the House side that it's going to be scary how much power the kind of squad insurgency has to really um, cross Pelosi, um, grind it to a halt. Uh, They will have been that kind of freedom caucus leverage that is real. But I think that in terms of over on the Senate side, Biden is is very sober about what he's up against. And um, and I think that he, if he's smart, and I think he will be, mostly, he will just slowly pare that COVID relief thing down. Yes, you're right. It has to be means tested. We can't give these checks to high income people. Yes, we can't include a $15 minimum wage in the package. And that he intends to get Republican votes. When look, I mean, actually, if you're up in 2022, I think you'd want to pass pandemic relief before the stuff, a lot of the stuff expires in March and April is going to have a huge injurious effect on the economy. So I think that that's what he hopes right now. He's a very optimistic person, but he's also very aware of the dynamics there. More than Kamala Harris, more than, you know, um, you know, everybody, everybody, he and Chuck Schumer know exactly what's going on. So they have to pretend like we're going to do all these things. Um, If they're still talking this way, you know, in the first week of March, then I'll think, um, something's weird, but I, I think he does not want to get rid of the filibuster. I think he respects that McConnell under tremendous heat from president Trump never got rid of the filibuster. And I think with the votes of conservative Democrats, that's not going to happen anyway. Um, it's this kind of what to put in reconciliation and when to use it, you know, that could get a little dicey, but we're just not going to see a big voting rights act. We're not going to see bold climate legislation. We're not going to see, um, a public option, um, a huge uh, change in eligibility for Medicare and Medicaid. The, the Democratic wish list on, on all these things um, is just not possible in the Senate. Yeah, it just feels like, you know, it's like when you're redlining your engine, you, you know, the needle gets in there and it goes back down. It feels like, like with the transgender stuff and uh, the Keystone Pipeline thing, some of these things are starting to have they're, they're creating a very nasty partisan and I have to say on the merits of the actual policy stuff uh, right-wing antibody response saying you know you promised to be a unifier you, you claim to be a moderate and you're coming out with this 
transgender stuff. You got rid of the Keystone pipeline. You want a $15 minimum wage. I think a lot of people on the right don't understand, are, are, are buying the messaging as much as the people on the left are, that um, they really intend to get this $15 minimum wage rather than putting it in as a chip to pull out later. And um, it just feels to me like, you know, I, I, I agree with every, as a matter of analysis, everything that you're saying, but in the sort of is versus ought world, the the best way to actually govern coming in, promising that the pandemic is going to be your top priority with people straight up losing their minds, being confined and with the schools and all of these kinds of things would be to go to the Republicans and say, hey, look, it's in your interest for a really ambitious COVID thing. We'll strip out this stuff. You don't try to put in any poison pill stuff in it either. And let's just show that we can govern, that you tried to show good faith. You can, your guys can campaign on that. We can campaign on that. Um, but instead, it feels like it's so much of this stuff is cable news fodder for both the left and the right that um, um, I think is going to make it more difficult. I mean, that's, it, to me, like, I am so sick of the pandemic now. I am legit outraged at the idea that they can't get legislation to deal with it until March or April. Um, you know, stop talking about this as if it's a war. If if you can't get reasonable legislation dealing with rolling out vaccines and, and all the rest done for 90 days, you know, um, but that's just sort of me. And I, I just I feel like the shut the 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 expiration date on the goodwill that Biden has with people hoping that he's not like captive to the left is is coming up. And these executive orders while they may placate the base, the base has no place else to go right now. And they are giving a narrative to Republicans that is, um, um, in part because I think the actual policies are bad, that um, is going to encourage them to lock in and do the we can't work with this guy stuff. And it could make our politics even uglier sooner rather than later. But see, that's such an interesting, I mean, basically that's, why can't you work with him on something you believe in, like money for opening schools or vaccine distribution, because he did something on transgender military rights in the in in, in the I mean, rights in the military, I, I mean, I, or eligibility. I, I, I agree. It's stupid. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I it's think, stupid. I, mean, but I, I just think that it would be it would be in the best interest of Republicans to be able to say to the voters they need to win back that they lost in the Trump era. I oppose these Biden EOs. I oppose these radical positions. Um, but I, but I'm gonna, you know, I'm glad that we were able to work together to um, stand up a national testing regimen, and um, you know, so that we could get people out in society and improve the economy before we're all vaccinated. I mean, to be able to say that, you know, you 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 did something with him um, is it would be my goal as a Republican is to find something that you could say. This is what I did um, did with him. And I, I, I agree. But I mean, we both talked for a while now about how there's a certain kind of like Fox primetime stranglehold on GOP primary voters. Yeah. And and talk radio stranglehold. Right. And, and do anything with him. I understand. <laughs> and those guys um, 
you know, rather than, you know, like, you know, in 2012, Sean Hannity said, oh, my gosh, maybe I was wrong about immigration. And, you know, we really need to have a rethinking about what the party is going to do on this stuff. There's not there's nothing like that kind of introspection from that crowd now. And instead, what they are so desperate for is a way to say, see, we told you it would be the end of America if if this guy got into the White House. You're right. And they're stringing together. Again, I think it's mostly BS. They're stringing together data points to construct that narrative. And it, Biden hasn't crossed the threshold yet, but it's it's redlining a bit. And, and, and this is the great irony, is that Republicans, I think, given where the Democratic Party is and how far left it's, it's gone, at least in terms of the loudest voices on that side, all Republicans would need to do is just be not crazy. Just be like, you know, boring, not crazy. Um, say, you know, this woke stuff is crazy. Is is it goes too far? Um, why are we screwing Canada at a deal that we made with them about the Keystone Pipeline and putting ten thousand people out of work? Um, and not get into um, see this shows that he's really a communist run by China or that the government is full of uh, vampiric pedophiles, right? I mean. If you want to win back those suburban voters, you want to be just not crazy and let the Democrats, who are often governed as a minority party, seem like the crazy ones. And we are now in an incentive structure where uh, that that seems crazy when I try to make that case to a lot of these people. I totally agree um, with you. And I was really thinking that it's the, the important lesson from the from the election where the Republicans did a lot better than they expect than anyone expected them to is that I think neither party is on a sustained growth path right now. If they soberly look at the at the election results, they, the Democrats have to accept that their cultural messaging turns off the voters that they need. At the same time, it's very hard for Mike Pompeo or Mike Pence to get the same working class Black and Latino uh, voters, I think, that Trump did. It would be very hard for Kamala Harris to get the same white men in the Rust Belt that Biden did. I don't, th I think either, bo both parties have serious deficits to examine. And the best thing for, you're right, it, it, the best thing for the Republicans to do is continue to highlight the craziness of the Democratic cultural messaging um, without being crazy themselves and without nominating fringe characters. I don't know that they can do that. It, it, yeah, it's that second part that they get hung up on. <laughs> you know? um, okay, uh, very quickly, I want to offer as um, the as one of the foremost uh, dog and quadruped champions on social media and um, in conservative media, I want to offer my heartfelt condolences on the passing of Homer, your beloved canine companion, um, who died last week? I mean, Jonah, I have to tell you, um, he died. He chose the most amazing timing. He was almost 14. He would have been 14 in March. Uh, he has been scaring us since November 10th. So, you know, you, you get a window when they're lucky enough not to be sick, but just aging, where you have these scares and it's up and down. Um, so we've been living on borrowed time. Um, and once he started his vigil, I, uh, he, he really only had two bad hours and he left us without a doctor's 
help, which was lovely. It was right after Trump left the White House for Joint Base Andrews. And um, before my son had to leave for college the next day and his twin sister two days after that. So we were all together. So really, as you know, when these things end, to have them end well is so meaningful because my job is not to demand that Homer lives longer. You know, our job as his family is to give him the best life ever and to give him the best journey out ever. So it was, um, I was so thankful um, that, that that's how it ended. And uh, he was so amazing uh, in so many ways. Just couldn't let me um, alone until Trump was gone. <laughs> I worried at the beginning of the year that he was going to be gone before uh, Bernie Sanders was uh, officially the socialist nominee of the Democratic Party. Um, and he hung on through uh, a lot. And having obviously having all this time with him in the pandemic was an amazing gift, um, really an amazing gift. So thank you. And I cannot thank your unbelievable international following uh, for the the notes and pictures that they shared of cats and dogs. Um, it was so sweet. And it really, I mean, if you're an animal lover, that doesn't make you sad. It actually makes you feel good. Even when you're seeing other people's dogs, it's, it's just, an, it's animal people are the best people. And it was really wonderful. If any of you are listening, were one of them. I just can't thank you enough. And Jonah, that was so wonderful of you to sort of send a call out. So yeah. So, li- so listeners who don't necessarily follow me on Twitter, I don't know. Um, I, cause I have known AB for a while now and basically we don't, this is the most we've talked in a sustained way about politics in a long time. Cause basically when we see each other, we talk about kids and dogs and, and dogs, you know, and, um, uh, and then I knew it hit you hard. So I just tweeted out a thing saying that, uh, my, the lovely and talented AB Stoddard is a, uh, um, her beloved Homer died. And if you could send her some Twitter love. Um, in the replies to my tweet, because Abe's a stalker on or a lurker on Twitter, um, uh, I'm sure she'll see him. And people really stood up and and sent a lot of great stuff. And I should say, I don't want to talk about the circumstances of my cat Ralph, um, or I should say, to keep up with tradition, my wife's cat Ralph um, passing away um, over the weekend because I don't want to get all verklempt. And um, the circumstances were not as fortuitous and perfectly timed as with with Homer. Um, and it was very sad. And um, but thank you to everybody for the condolences on that. It is a weird thing when when pets go, they they leave. You forget how much of the rhythms of your life are like water around rocks. You know, the, you, you carve out this space in your life to take account for these creatures. And then when they go, it's this phantom pain like you're missing a limb because you've you you forgot one of the purposes of your day you know one of the purposes of the day that you organize around your day is not there anymore and um and so i've been sort of sunned by how much you know i um miss ralph's presence yeah um, it, it's a silent uh, presence but it's a huge presence yeah. and i do feel that way. i feel like someone cut my arm off the house is so quiet. Even if he was here, it just wouldn't be this quiet. If it, if I mean, if it, if even if it wasn't barking, it's just a, it is. It's a huge, huge souls, huge presence, and um, and they, unlike human beings who have free will, they 
their life is us. They depend entirely on, as you said, us designing our lives around the rhythm of their day, our day, connected. They don't just get in the car and leave us. So it's, it is a different um, emptiness, for sure. So are you going to get a puppy? So we, as a family, so, we, you know, my twins are freshmen in college. Lily, my high school senior, is leaving for college in late August, the pandemic willing. And so what we want to do is get a puppy born in February that we can adopt in April. I've only rescued before, but we're going to sort of go puppy this time. So we're going to get one in April, ideally, that we can um, all bond with immediately and they can help me with the toilet training. And then um, they can we can sort of be a new family. And three months later, everyone will leave for college. So that that's the that's what we're looking for. Golden retriever puppies are not as easy to come by <laughs> as people think. Um, yeah. I think. Particularly pr- properly bred ones, because there's some terrible puppy mills for gold. And that's what we're so but, afraid of, is that my daughter's been hitting up ads and then saying to mom, saying to me, mom, I feel like this is suspicious and I don't know if they're legit. And we don't even really know. We don't want to end up, yeah, with, we don't want to end up with some scam. So that's, it's an interesting um, education process. Listeners who may have insight about uh, reliable golden breeders, um, preferably on the East Coast, I oh, think. We will go. Uh, We've been looking at Missouri. We'll go. We don't want to go to California, but I'll take any advice short of California. Okay. Yeah. So just send me an email about it at Jonah at the dispatch, and I'll forward the non-crazy ones <laughs> to, uh, to to AB. Um, just be, you know, I mean, a gold, Goldens are wonderful dogs. You know, I mean, I often deride them as the vanilla dog because – you know, there's a reason why vanilla is the most popular flavor of ice cream in the country. It's not because it's everyone's favorite. It's because it is the least objectionable flavor to the most yeah. people. You can always serve vanilla at a wedding. And there's just a pure, basic doggy goodness to Goldens that um, is really kind of special. Um, but, you know, we wanted to do the puppy route because um, my daughter had never had a puppy. And uh, but we tried to do the rescue thing. And. We ended up getting um, this Carolina Swamp Dog, Zoe, and um, you know, uh, so we would we love Zoe. I don't want to speak ill of her, but we wanted like a German Shepherd mix, and instead we got you know, it's it's sort of like what do what do mockingbirds do? They they go into people, they go into other birds' nests and put their <laughs> eggs in it. What some breed of bird does that? It's like. We thought we were going to get a German Shepherd mix puppy, and instead we got this furry Velociraptor. <laughs> and um, it's a, uh, but you know that's how life yeah, works. Yeah. Now we love a this lot of furry dogs Velociraptor. Find their owners, and so. that's that's the way it's supposed to be. All right, um, my love. Uh, that's the end of this, and uh, I really want to thank you for coming on again. And um, we'll hope to it's have you back soon. It's a pleasure on and an honor, as always, to be with you, Jonah. I just want to say, as a renewed subscriber, I'm pro Jonah blog. Oh, cool! Just want to throw that out there. Okay, I want yeah. my vote to be to be registered. I appreciate that. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm up for your um, quick spurts, even if they don't survive three news cycles later. I think it's good. And I just want to say, since I'm not allowed to flatter you. Um, I have really, uh, you guys are kicking so much butt, but I just, um, I did read enough David French, you know, before this last year 
but um, he has just been an incredible voice in this dark time. Uh, really a treasure. Uh, and I, I, I just uh, can't say that enough that if you don't get enough Jonah and David because you're behind the wall, you need to step up and subscribe more. I, I appreciate you said that, and I'll be sure not to tell David that you did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, AV, thanks again for coming on. Thank you.